0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Allison Mendes, and today I'm going to be covering the story of Kendall Francois, who ended up being the Poughkeepsie serial killer. Francois was born on July 26th of 1971 in Poughkeepsie New York in 1975 Kendall's parents purchased um, the family home on Fulton Avenue in Poughkeepsie where he would grow up and where most of his crimes would later take place Kendall was referred to as a quiet kid he often kept to himself He was often bullied by the other children for his weight and his height. He was unusually tall for his age. Um, By the age of 14 years old he was 6'4 and over 250 pounds. Kendall graduated Arlington Middle School in 1982 and went on to attend Arlington High School. While in high school, Kendall finally found a place where he felt he belonged and fit in, which was um, on the football team and on the wrestling team. And his freshman year, he was actually starting for the varsity team on both. And um, Kendall graduated in 1989 and decided to join the army. So he went and attended um, basic training the next year in 1990 in Fort Sill, Oklahoma and after that he was stationed in Honolulu, Hawaii for the next four years until he was discharged in 1994 and at that point he moved back to his family home in Poughkeepsie and moved back in with his um, mother, father and one of his sisters. At this point he started attending um, Dutchess County Community College and he got a job working for the Arlington School District as a janitor at his old middle school. Now, this is pretty much all I could find on his early life I found like a general timeline for events but as far as things that you would typically see in a serial killer such as young childhood abuse sexual abuse there's nothing that I could find that said that in fact anything that I could find um, just said that he wasn't he wasn't abused Um, I found later that when they went into the family home that it was very dirty Um, it was really disgusting I know that um, Kendall himself was also aside from being called the Poughkeepsie um, serial killer he's also referred to as the stinky killer Um, he had poor personal hygiene um, along along with being you know a lot bigger than the kids around him both in weight and in height Um, but as far as young childhood trauma and anything like that, I could not find anything. So that's pretty much it for his early life. And then we're going to get right into the crimes. So in the month of October of 1996, a woman named Wendy Myers was reported missing to the town of Lloyd police in Ulster County, New York by her boyfriend. She was a 30-year-old white woman with a slim build, hazel eyes, and short brown hair. Now, Wendy Myers was a sex worker, and two days before she had been reported missing, she had been picked up by none other than Kendall Francois on the corner of Jewett Avenue and Main Street after getting into Kendall's red 1984 Subaru, Wendy was taken back to his family's home, specifically his bedroom on the second floor. And I guess Wendy insisted on payment before anything happened. And later when he told the story, Kendall recalled that kind of abruptly, Wendy said that the sex was over and she she was going to leave. And Kendall became very angry about this, and he responded by putting his hands around her neck and choking her to death. Now, after this, he carried her limp body into a nearby bathroom, and he bathed her before putting her in a plastic bag and taking her body up to the attic of the family's home. Now, just a month later, on November 11th of 1996, Kendall picked up 28-year-old sex worker Gina Barone. Gina had only been working that night after she had gotten into an argument with her boyfriend, Byron. And like before, after sex, Kendall felt he'd been ripped off and he became angry, gripping Gina's throat and not releasing until she was dead. Now, this murder took place in his vehicle on in some back street of Poughkeepsie. And once he had murdered Gina, he kind of positioned her body underneath the seats of his car and he drove back to his home, parked his car in the garage where he left it along with Gina's lifeless body under the seats until the next morning when he put her body in a black plastic bag and he placed her next to Diane in the attic. Now, just days later on November 31st of 1996, Kendall drove his mother to work at the Hudson River Psychiatric Hospital, and afterwards, he drove to pick up his next victim. He picked up Kathy Marsh with the intention of exchanging sex for money back at his family home but shortly after they had sex he choked Kathy to death and moved her body upstairs to the attic with the previous two victims on December 9th of the same year about 12 days after Gina Barone had gone missing her mother Patricia called the police um, to report her missing and in early January of 1997 Kendall left his job at Arlington Middle School and he began working at Anderson School, but um, this employment didn't last long and he was fired shortly after he began working there. Now, the next victims that come along, some there's more information than others. Um, So some of them, their mention might be brief. That's just because I couldn't find a lot of information on specifically what happened, but I am going to name every single one, um, and I'm going to give it to you, obviously, in chronological order so that the timeline of the case makes sense. Um, So on January 15th of 1997, a 47-year-old woman named Kathleen Hurley was reported missing by her family. She had been last seen walking along Main Street in the downtown area of Poughkeepsie, and it's after this disappearance that police Really start suspecting there may be a serial killer in the area. And they begin to pay closer attention and they start looking for a pattern in these disappearances. And at this point, three women have been reported missing. Later, it would be four that were reported missing. Um, But they were all small, petite, white women. They were all sex workers. They all had brunette hair. Most of them actually had blue eyes. And after police had spoken with sex workers in the area. They had received kind of similar reports from a lot of them. Um, And the name that kept popping up was Kendall Francois. He was notorious among the sex workers for being rough during sex and sometimes choking them too hard. And so when they learn of this, the police decide to put his home um, on Fulton Avenue under surveillance. And police suspicion only grew more intense by March of 1997, when Kathy Marsh was finally reported missing by her mother. She was the fourth woman that had gone missing. She had been missing for four months at this point, and she fit the same description as the other three missing women. About a month later, the Poughkeepsie police made the decision to reach out to the FBI for some help. And although the FBI was very interested and they wanted to help out with the case, there wasn't really much that they could do at this point in the investigation because the FBI need a crime scene that they can analyze in order to build a profile of a suspect. And so far, none of these missing women had turned up and there were no crime scenes for them to take a look at. so after the police reach out to the FBI several months go by um, and not much is happening but in September of 1997 a woman named Michelle Eason disappears now about a month later it would take about a month for um, Michelle to be reported missing on October 9th of 1997 and this very same day police receive a complaint that Kendall's car is illegally parked in town so they go down and they they ticket Kendall's car and by the end of the month he hasn't moved it Um, he hasn't done anything with the vehicle so they impound it. and one day after the vehicle is impounded Kendall picks it up um, shortly after he dumps it along with the license plate and at this point he purchases a late model Toyota Camry now I don't know the purpose of him replacing the car it could have been something very simple and innocent um, or it could have been something you know a little bit more with more guilty intentions I know that police were working with sex workers at this point and they were asking them for help in the investigation and when you have a someone that is picking up sex workers in the same vehicle over and over again and then maybe that's the last vehicle you see them getting into before they're reported missing some descriptions are going to start popping up and so he could have been trying to avoid something like that happening But on November 13th of 1997, Mary Giaconi was reported missing. Unlike the previous woman, Mary's report was actually generated by police. Her father, a retired New York State corrections officer, had come to police for help in locating his daughter after her mother had passed away and he was having trouble locating her. And when the police try, and they still can't locate her um, and get a hold of her, she is reported missing. She had reportedly been last seen alive in February of 1997 on the same streets of Poughkeepsie as the other women who had gone missing. By December 14th of 1997, the story had finally broke on kind of what had been going on around Poughkeepsie. And the press kind of had word that women were going were going missing, and it was finally reported by the Poughkeepsie Journal, and the article was titled "Is There a Serial Killer Loose?" Now, with Kendall still under surveillance, police officers um, pulled over Kendall after he dropped his mother off at work on January 18th of 1998. And they asked him to come to the police station for questioning. Kendall cooperated, um, and he even agreed to take a polygraph test, and he passed the polygraph test with flying colors. So he is—he was never arrested, but he leaves the police station, and they, really, they don't have anything at this point. Now, just a few days later, on January 23rd, Kendall picked up a woman named Laura Gallagher. After the two had sex, Kendall attempted to kill Laura, um, and he started choking her. She had briefly um, lost consciousness, but when she came back to, she somehow was able to free herself from underneath him. He was a huge man, and all of his victims were petite women, so the fact that she could even get out from underneath him is... Insane, But when your adrenaline is pumping like that, sometimes it just it just happens. Um, and once she gets away from him, she somehow convinced him to just forget the whole thing um, and drive him back to Main Street where he had picked her up. And he agrees to this and he drops her back off. Now, when Laura gets back, she does tell some of the women that she frequently works with Um, what had happened, and the women actually go to the police department and tell them. Again, a lot of the sex workers in the area are working with police at this time, and um, the police go to Laura. They bring her in for questioning, and it takes a while to convince her, but she finally agrees to press charges, and about a month later in February, she um, finally signs the documents she needs to in order to file assault assault charges which Kendall ends up pleading guilty to and I guess because he had entered into some sort of plea deal for his guilty plea to the assault charges he somehow is sentenced to literally 15 days in jail and he does not even serve 15 days he serves 7 days in jail and he is released so I'm not even sure what kind of sentence that is it's, that's just like insane to me but that's what happened Um, so about a month goes by and in June of 1998, Kendall picked up and killed a sex worker by the name of Sandra Jean French. After this, he dumped her body in the attic of his home. And the next day he moved her body into a crawl space in the basement. Um, now he moved her because I guess there was not enough room in the attic, or something like that, Um, probably because the three previous victims were still up there. And three days after her murder, Sandra was um, reported missing by her mother, and the same day, police find her abandoned vehicle just three blocks away from Kendall's home. Now, Sandra also fit the description of the women who had been going missing in the area. On August 12th of 1998, Kendall picked up a sex worker named Audrey Pugliese. While she was working on Knoxon Street, um, being a regular of Audrey's, Uh, She recognizes Kendall and it doesn't take long for the two of them to negotiate a price and she gets in his car. Now, when they get back to his house, they go down to the basement and they begin having sex. Somewhere while this is going on, Kendall apparently lost his temper and began punching Audrey in the face. Now, Audrey manages to get out from underneath her attacker and she makes a run for the basement door but Kendall is too fast and he's right behind her he grabs her by the back of her head and pulls her back and starts punching her again this time she hits the floor Kendall's foot comes down on Audrey's head with his full body weight behind it and then again on her ribs and Audrey was still fighting she tried to get up one more time And this time, Kendall grabbed Audrey by the throat and he did not let go until she was no longer breathing. Kendall dumped Audrey's body right on top of Sandra's in the crawl space of the basement. Now, just a few weeks later, on August 25th, Kendall would finally commit his last murder. Katina Newmaster... recognized Kendall as well as one of her regulars and negotiated a price before getting into his car. Um, Sadly, just moments later, she would be lying dead on the garage floor, only to be dumped in the same crawl space with the rest of Kendall's victims the next morning. Now, finally, on September 2nd of 1998, A woman named Diane Franco was picked up in Poughkeepsie and driven to Kendall's home with the intention of trading sex for money. Once the two were finished having sex, Diane requested her payment, and she said at this point, things took a turn for the worst. Kendall became extremely angry, and he put his hands around her throat in an attempt to strangle her. Now, Kendall is 380 pounds at this point. And Diane weighs about one thirty, but somehow she manages to escape his grip and she establishes some distance between the two of them. Um, and she starts to kind of argue with Kendall and tells him, look, I will forget the entire incident. If you will just take me back to where you picked me up. And I don't know if it was the argument that convinced him because I know that he did live with his family and, um, Later on, he will say that he acted completely alone. So I don't know if he was worried about the noise being an issue and alerting any of his family members who might have been home or what it is, but she convinces him, and he um, he drives her back to Main Street and drops her off at a gas station. And once they get there, Diane jumps out of the car and races away and does not look back. Now, what Kendall didn't know at this time was that he was still under police surveillance. Detective Skip Mannion had been following Kendall on the night of September 2nd, and after Kendall's vehicle had driven away from the gas station where he had just dropped off Diane, Mannion decided to pull in and check it out now upon his arrival he could hear the gas station employee yelling and he ran inside and showed his badge and asked the man you know what's going on and the gas station clerk was the man who'd been yelling and he informed him that a woman had just come in and said that she had just been raped but that she had already left now detective manion quickly caught up with diane who was just walking down the road nearby and after a little bit of convincing, she agreed to come down to the station with him and file a report about what happened. When they arrived at the station, it didn't take long for police to find out who Diane's attacker was because it wasn't the first time that Diane had had an encounter with him. In fact, he was one of her regulars and she knew him by name and the man was Kendall Francois. By mid-afternoon the next day, two police officers um, arrived at 99 Fulton Avenue and requested that Kendall come down to the police station so that they can ask him a few questions, which he agrees to. Now at 4 p.m. police begin their interview with Kendall and he's read his Miranda rights and agrees to talk to the police without a lawyer present. When questioned about what happened with Diane, Kendall admitted that he had choked her during sex but had he had calmed down and once they were done, he had driven her back like they'd previously agreed upon. Now, this story did line up with the statement that Diane had given to police and at this point, Diane was ready to actually press charges against Kendall. So, after he gave a written and recorded statement concerning the incident with Diane, Kendall actually asked to talk to a prosecutor and they said okay yeah we'll get one and after that he said I also want to see bring me the photos of all of the sex workers who have gone missing since 1993. Um, So police brought him the photos and he picked out seven. Four of them he put aside and said, told police specifically that he had killed them. And then he referenced the three photos that were left and said that he was not sure about those, but he thinks that he did. So by 1 1 a.m. that day, which is now September 3rd, police are outside of the Fulton Avenue home. And McKinley Francois, who is Kendall's father, answered the door, at which time the police informed him that they were there to execute a search warrant. So McKinley and Kendall's mother, Paulette, along with the sister that Kendall, that still lived at the home, were told to leave the home so that law enforcement could begin their search. Having been told already by Kendall where to find the bodies, the forensic specialists headed down immediately into the basement of the home where they found the crawl space at the rear wall approximately five feet from the ground. And when they shined their flashlights into the crawl space, they could clearly see the plastic bags. And when they looked a little bit further, they could see what looked like, I think, a kneecap sticking out. Um, But they knew, you know, what they had found. Now, in an effort to preserve evidence, the two bags were left untouched for the time being, and they headed to the second location that Kendall had given investigators and there, in the corner of the attic, right in plain sight, was a clear plastic bag sitting in the corner of the room with a skeleton of at least one person in it. Over the next eight days, investigators would find a total of eight bodies in the home that Kendall shared with his family, and three bodies were found in the attic, five bodies were found in the crawl space of the basement. After searching the home on Fulton Avenue for nearly four weeks, the forensic team concluded their investigation. And on October 13th of 1998, a grand jury indicted Kendall on eight counts of second-degree murder and one count of second-degree attempted assault on Diane Franco. The next day, Kendall was arraigned, and with his attorney Rudolph Treese as well as the families of his victims present in the courtroom. He pleaded not guilty on all counts. With the substantial amount of evidence that there was against Kendall, his attorney attempted to get a plea deal out of the out of the DA requesting um, a life sentence in exchange for a guilty plea and, a, and in exchange for taking the death penalty off of the table. However, on December 23rd Kendall entered a guilty plea for, first-degree murder in order to escape the death penalty, which was kind of like a loophole in the law in New York. And on March 31st of 2000, Kendall attempted to appeal this guilty plea, but on May 19th, the New York State Court of Appeals reviewed and rejected his appeal. Now, on June 22nd of 2000, Kendall was brought in front of a judge to confirm his plea before trial was set to begin, but this time Kendall pled guilty to all charges. Kendall stated that he had acted alone and without help from anyone else, and his lawyer informed the court that Kendall was HIV positive. On August 8th of 2000, a plea deal was was agreed upon, and it was decided that Kendall would serve 25 years to life for each murder, served consecutively resulting in a 200 year sentence he also received an additional one and a half to three years for the assault of Diane Franco and according to the terms of this plea deal no appeal would be allowed Kendall went on to serve his sentence but on September 11th of 2014 at the age of 43 years old he died And it's believed that he had cancer. It was listed as natural causes. Although I did find somewhere that said it wasn't due to the HIV. So someone who a woman had been in correspondence with him while he was in prison. And she said that he had confided in her that he had cancer. So that's what I found on that. Now, I want to go back to Michelle Eason. I mentioned her earlier. Um, She was not one of the murders that Kendall was charged with and her remains were not found in the home with the other victims Michelle was a black woman um, and although it's widely believed that Kendall is responsible for her murders her case still remains unsolved Um, Kendall allegedly hinted to police during interviews that he was responsible for her death but said that he would never admit to that because he did not want to be associated with the murder of a black woman Um, So her case is still open in Poughkeepsie She's still a missing person She's never been found Her remains have never been found And she left behind um, a very young daughter as well So if you or anyone that you know Has any information regarding the disappearance of Michelle Eason You can reach out to the Poughkeepsie Police Department At 845 451 four zero 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 again that's eight four five four five one four zero 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 and I will have a link in the episode notes um, to Michelle's case and I will also post a picture of her on our social media pages so that you guys can see what she looks like Um, but yeah thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode If you find this podcast interesting, please subscribe and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps so much with the algorithm and being able to reach more people, especially as a new podcast. Um, If you wanna keep up with me on social media and see pictures from these cases, you can find this podcast on Instagram at True Crime Cases Pod, on Facebook at True Crime Cases Podcast, and on Twitter at TC Cases Pod all of my sources for this episode will be listed in the show notes below and I will be back next Tuesday with a brand new case. Thank you so much.